Malachi chapter 2, this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And as we're finding our way there, just a reminder that the book is made up of a series of rebukes from the Lord. Uh, directed toward the children uh, of Israel and uh, toward her priests and uh, concerning uh, the, their, in particular, their very, very low spiritual uh, temperature and, uh, and their appallingly low view of God and, and Christian service. So he talks, and we'll see specifically here as we get into chapter 2, he, he speaks in this early part uh, very, very focused upon the priests who had led the people into this kind of apostasy that they find themselves in the middle of. And we could look and say, well, I'm no priest of the old covenant. What does this have to do with me? But the Bible does teach that we are, as Christians, we are kings and priests or a kingdom of priests. And each one of us as Christians, we occupy the role of the Old, uh, old Testament priests in the sense that their role was made up of two things and that was to represent God before the people and then also to represent the people before God in their intercession and in their prayer. And that's something that each of us are, are called to. We might remember that God rebuked their questioning of his love for them in the face of such undeniable expressions of his love in their past and in their, in their present. He also uh, charged the priests with being guilty of treating him with disrespect with despising his name, revealed in the fact that they were offering sacrifices to him that were way below the standard that was required in the law of Moses. They were treating uh, God in a way that they would never dream of treating another human being or treating their governors, uh, and, uh, and God rebuked them for that. And then, as we've seen third, God confronted their very, very low view of Christian service uh, they esteemed it to be a, a weariness, and they sneered at it, and that brings us then to chapter 2. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart uh, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. And so he rebukes them, and he, and he reminds them of the fact that their ministry is one in which they are to give glory uh, to the Lord. And they weren't doing it. That's why he was uh, reminding them uh, of it. That was supposed to be the aim of, of their ministry. And they've lost that attitude toward God and toward their Christian service. So you say, what in the world, what other motives could a Christian have for uh, serving God uh, than to bring him glory? Uh, well, there are a lot of motives that can come into play. Uh, a need to be needed by other people, a need to be seen, uh, a, a need to lord it over uh, other people, a need to uh, be thought of as extra spiritual uh, by uh, other people. There can be greed, a love for money uh, can play a part in, in all of it. A, a, uh, the ministry becomes simply a a place where a person can showcase their natural talent. There can be a lot of motivations for Christian uh, service and that it, it, the motivations that are not rooted in bringing glory uh, to God. 
And the motivation is so important in our Christian service because the Bible says that we're going to be rewarded one day not merely for the amount of Christian service that we've done, but for what sort it is, what motive was behind our Christian service. And I can give a lifetime of service to the Lord. And if it is done, I mean countless hours, and if it is done to glorify myself and to profit myself in in some way, there will be no reward for it. So we stop, whether it's the worship team or whether it's me or wherever we are in, in serving the Lord, and to just ask and say, am I doing this because I want to glorify Him and I want the whole world to know how wonderful He is. That motive was not in the mix anymore for these priests. Uh, but we're never motiveless. There was some other motive, inferior motive, that was driving them uh, in, in, in their service to the Lord. And so the Lord, He uh, declares uh, there in uh, 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 the latter part of verse 2. He said, I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not uh, take it or take this uh, to heart. God will simply not bless an individual. Uh, He he will not bless a ministry uh, uh, that competes with him for his glory among his people or tries to take uh, the glory that's due uh, away from him and, uh, and uses the Lord as kind of a selfish means to an end rather than him being the end in itself. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, famous in this regard. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And so the Lord is just drop-dead serious uh, about this issue. And uh, if ever we want to limit his blessing and his fruitfulness and favor upon our service to him, uh, then this is one of the ways to do that. Now, can you grow a big ministry or grow a big thing that is popular and, and looks like, you know, shebang all around and, uh, in, in our culture? You absolutely can on the basis of natural talent or on the basis of things that move people emotionally. But, uh, you, but it will never enjoy the infinitely superior uh, to all of those things, presence of Ho- His Holy Spirit and the witness of His Holy Spirit to the things of, of Him. And then in verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse or dung on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it, then you will know that I have sent this commandment uh, to you. And so the Lord declared that he would publicly humiliate these priests. Uh, He would humble them because they were humiliating him. You might remember they're offering sacrifices uh, to the Lord, sacrifices that are lame, sacrifices that are diseased, so far below the standard of uh, a lamb without spot and without blemish, All of it's speaking of Christ. They're marring the whole thing. And they're not only are they they accepting these sacrifices from people, but they're then telling people that that's okay. That's all God uh, deserves is your leftovers, not your best. And and they're permeating the the, uh, children of Israel 
with this attitude. They are publicly humiliating God in their actions. And God says, I will publicly humiliate uh, you. You offer these sacrifices of these damaged animals to me. You offer things on the altar that should not be offered. You offer the, the, the intestines. You offer, offer the dung. You put all of this on here in violation of, of my uh, word. You rub this in my face. He said, I will rub this in, in your face uh, as, uh, as well, as well. He'll make these uh, priests then be cast away as he speaks it to them. I will cast you away in the same way that those parts of the animal should have been cast away from having any place of, uh, uh, in the service or in, in the worship uh, uh, of, of me. And so speaking about the fact that uh, he's going to bring, he's going to purify and, and he's going to restore the priesthood. And then in... Uh, the, the latter part of verse 4, he uh, said uh, that my covenant, and he's going to do this purification, work of purif purification, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. And so uh, here God calls on this current uh, crop of priests to return to the ways of Levi. Levi uh, was the, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the tribe uh, of Israel from which uh, the priests came in order to serve the Lord. You had to be a Levite in order uh, to be a, a priest and certainly to be a high, high priest. And so uh, that, and Levi, when he was given the position of, of being that uh, priestly uh, kind of tribe, uh, he had a respect for God. He had an awe uh, for God. Uh, 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 God is saying here, he had a, a, a great sobriety about this responsibility that had been given to him uh, at, at the very, very uh, beginning. And so Levi served the Lord out of a sense of privilege and uh, the sense of privilege of being able to do this. He didn't serve out of a sense of, of entitlement at all and, uh, or any sense that he was doing God some kind of a favor in serving him as this new batch of priests were doing here. It is a work of God's grace uh, that he uses us, and certainly that he uses me. You know why he called me to be a pastor? He said, I'm gonna put this guy in the desk right in front of the teacher, and I'm gonna keep him so busy that if I don't keep him this busy, he'll get into all kinds of trouble. It's not any kind of uh, greatness in our lives. It's all, all grace. And, and this was just now casual to them. Ah, oh, God's lucky to have me. I'm a, a blessing to, you know, the body of Christ in, in and of myself. And the Lord uh, said that was never the attitude of, of Levi. There was a sense of privilege in terms of, of even identifying with God, let alone being able to, to, uh, to serve him. I think that this is, uh, can come times, and certainly they mark the times in church history immediately uh, prior to these uh, kind of sporadic, they're not sporadic in God's view, these sporadic kind of revivals that occur in the course of, of church uh, history and uh, where uh, people can get so carnal, they can get so self-dominated, uh, the ministry of the church becomes so far from 
what it was intended to be uh, by the apostles and by uh, Jesus himself. It becomes so uh, unbiblical uh, that in those times in church history, you have to go back in terms of time, expose yourself to the writings of the men and women uh, who served the Lord long, long ago to tap into a different spirit, to a different sobriety, a different fear of God, because it doesn't exist today. And I'm not saying that it doesn't exist at all today, but it becomes so rare today that you say, I need to go back and read, as God is telling them to do with Levi, go back and remember what it was like when it was right and the attitude uh, toward me. Uh, I think that this kind of thing uh, often forces uh, people that serve the Lord, and sometimes you'll hear pastors talking about it uh, as well when they might be asked about their godly influences in their life. And of course, our, the influences that challenge us, iron sharpening iron, that challenge us and keep us growing in our calling and in our relationship with the Lord, it includes people who are alive today. It certainly includes people in this room today for me, but it also includes people who are long ago dead, and, uh, and reading what it is that they wrote and all of these kind of things in order to stay tapped into a period in church history in the United States of America that took these things far more seriously than we do in general uh, today. And so the, the saying that goes along with this kind of thing is, if they ain't dead, they ain't read. And, uh, and, and it's the same kind of attitude to stay uh, tied in to... Uh, to, to the health of the past when, when there's these kind of attitudes dominating Christianity and Christian service at, that, at, 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 at the time. And then in, in verse 5, God declared to them, my covenant was with him, that is Levi, uh, and the covenant is one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. And so he feared me, was reverent before my name, the law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from their iniquity. And so he now informs them of if they go back to Levi and study his life, uh, what they uh, will learn about ministry under Levi, what he wants them to return uh, to. And he tells them in verse 5 to return to a service that's a blessing uh, to God, a blessing uh, service to the Lord done Levi's way with that kind of, of a sobriety and a, a seriousness about the fact that this is life and death for eternity. Uh, this is God Almighty that we're representing before uh, the, the world and that as somebody operates in that way, it doesn't end up... In, in some kind of a dismal, joyless life at all, uh, but it is a, a life that is filled with meaning and purpose and satisfaction and peace. He tells them further that Levi feared and re respected the Lord there in, in verse 5, and uh, this awesome responsibility to claim uh, to represent God before uh, the world and before God's people. It requires a kind of respect and, and a fear uh, of God in order to stay on the straight and narrow. I fear God. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet a nickel on anyone surviving 
for a month in Christian service uh, without a fear of God, a deep respect for God, a zeal for His name, and a fear of ever tarnishing His name before the world. And they were doing it readily as not in some hidden place within their homes. Uh, they were doing it openly in the offering uh, of the sacrifices. He reminded them that Levi uh, gave people the truth of God's Word. That's what he was there and what he was doing, ministering the Word. Injustice was not found on his lips. He judged everything uh, by uh, the Word of God. And he walked with the Lord in peace and equity. He was fair, impartial in his judgments that came, uh, that came forth. People saying, what does God say about this? What does God tell me to do uh, here? And whether the person was a king or the person was a shoemaker, it didn't matter. He would tell them the same thing uh, from uh, the Word of God. No respect uh, of, uh, of persons. And then he turned uh, many away from their sins. And so he told them the truth. He told them to repent if repentance was what uh, needed to occur uh, within their lives, speaking to God's uh, people there. And uh, he didn't take advantage of their sin. He didn't overlook their sin so that uh, he could be popular with them and say, boy, if you want to get a good deal on you know, a, a offering to God a small kind of offering related to the uh, sins you've committed or whatever, go to Levi because uh, he's, uh, he's easy on all of this, uh, this kind of thing. And so uh, he, uh, he w was straightforward with the word and uh, he turned many away from iniquity. So it's very interesting. Uh, somehow it came, a, a clip came across my, uh, my eyes. I was a complete victim uh, this week. But um, this, this clip of a, a, you know, one of the pastors of one of the biggest churches in the United States of America today uh, declaring the fact that, you know, he doesn't talk about judgment and he doesn't talk about sin. He says, I stay in my lane talking about the blessings of God and these kind of things. He says, I don't go there. I leave that to other people. You can't do that. You have to preach the whole counsel of God. If you're going to have God's blessing uh, upon it, that is what these guys are doing. And it is to that kind of situation that God says, go back to Levi, go back to the apostles, go back to Jesus himself as your example. If the current culture can't provide you with an example of sobriety and how important all of this, uh, uh, this is. And so uh, he, he tells them in verse 7, uh, what uh, the priests in every generation were to be, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. He should be known for speaking godly thing and encouraging people in uh, the, the, the perspective of the Lord through his word, and for he is a messenger uh, of the Lord of hosts. That's his uh, one uh, great... Uh, kind of calling related to, uh, to his life and, uh, and to represent the Lord in this way. Sometimes, it's been a long time, but I remember many years ago where sometimes in kind of maybe all of us a little bit are, um, you know, you start as a pastor and uh, so many of us did in Calvary Chapel at the same time. And, and then um, uh, 
then the honeymoon uh, gets over if there was a honeymoon, and then it gets really, really hard. And, uh, and then you begin to realize that people are watching your life. I mean, they're really watching your life. If you think people watch your life once they find out you're a Christian, wait till they find out you're a pastor. Uh, and don't make a mistake. But, but the kind of a little bit of whining related to things is life is so hard in the fishbowl. No, it's supposed to be like that. To be in the fishbowl is the privilege. Uh, we want people to see. We want people to examine. We want people to come to conclusions about God from our, uh, our lives. We want to make sure, though, that they see the right things. It's never a bad thing that we're in the fishbowl as Christians. That's exactly how it's intended to be. And of course, we've, we've uh, you know, you grow through that and then, and, uh, and, and then come to uh, embrace it. And so uh, a tremendous, really uh, needed rebuke and a reminder of these priests and, and uh, for them to return to the standard uh, of Levi. But I, I would contend in, in our current uh, ministry culture within the body of Christ here today. Okay, you get the priests doing what they're supposed to be doing. You get them to do what they uh, should learn, we should learn from Levi, from the apostles, from Jesus, but you return to these things, and the great question is, will the congregation put up with it? because it takes both sides of that. And the Bible says that in the last days, uh, men and women, speaking of Christians, they're going to have itching ears, they're going to heap up to themselves teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. And I'm not saying that related to you. I know that that's not true related to you. Why would you be here on a Sunday night in the book of Malachi and say, I'm gonna go to, I need my ears uh, itched. I think I'll go to Sunday night church and study the book of Malachi. You see, I mean, it just uh, it doesn't match uh, here. But uh, it, you've, you had in some of these church growth movements that have dominated Christendom in the United States of America, where success is governed by nickels and noses, the number of people, and the money. And that becomes the criteria for the, the calling on a pastor or the success of the pastor. And if they can't meet those two things, out they go. And, and if they do these things and they jeopardize nickels and noses, out they go. So it has to work both ways. The leaders, gotta, we got to keep our heads screwed on straight, but the congregation has to watch what are the expectations I bring to church? What are the expectations I bring to church leadership? And, uh, and is that my expectation from them? And then am I offended when they actually act in, in that role? And, and again, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm just saying this because it's in the Bible and, and not because I, I feel like we have a current problem uh, here uh, this morning. Now, first service, Sunday mornings, that's that group right there. That's who I should be preaching to. I'm just kidding. They're, they're, so he goes on in uh, verse 8, and he says, But you have departed from the way, and you have caused many to stumble, 
at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And therefore, I have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but you have shown partiality uh, in the law. And so they had departed from the ways of Levi. In other words, he's saying, if Levi were to show up on the scene here in Jerusalem and see what you're doing with what God called him and his descendants to do, he'd be appalled. He wouldn't even be able to recognize it as remotely like anything that he understood it uh, to, to be in what you have turned Christian service uh, uh, into. And when it talks about them stumbling people as a result of it, the idea is them bringing their lame and their blind and their broken sacrifices unworthy of God and then the priests offering it to the Lord uh, rather than turning it away and then uh, stumbling people in that because the people would, uh, would know that it, was, uh, that it was wrong to do. And so they uh, corrupted the covenant uh, of, of Levi, God's intent for uh, the priestly uh, tribe. And so he said, I'll make you contemptible and base before all of the people. Now there's no doubt that as they're performing their ministries there in Jerusalem, uh, they had a popular following. It wasn't like nobody didn't like them, that nobody liked this new low standard for Christianity or for walking with God. There were a lot of people that uh, liked it. And there will be a lot of people that will like a, a, a carnal ministry uh, today, but it won't enjoy his witness, the witness of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit adding his amen to, uh, to, the, to the Christian uh, the service that's being offered uh, unto uh, the Lord. And so God made sure uh, that his favor was not upon them. And as popular as they may have been to certain people, there was another group of people connected with God that would look at it and say, this is Ichabod, God has departed. He is ha For all of the uh, lights, camera, and action, uh, he is not participating in this at all. And so the Lord promised, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to bless you and make people think this is what Judaism is about or what I've called the Jewish people to be or what I've called a, a, uh, a Christian uh, to be. And the Lord was really in rebuking them in this way as he talks about it there, in, in, uh, especially in verse 9, the Lord is being very, very gracious to them because what they were doing as priests under the law of Moses, that was a capital crime. That they were to be killed to, to misrepresent God in, in this way. It warranted death according to the law of Moses. Numbers chapter 18, verse 32, and you shall bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of uh, the children of Israel, lest you uh, die. And so uh, there's a lot of grace in this scene uh, in his call on them uh, to repent. When we come now to verse 10, we come to the third oracle or the third rebuke or address of God to the children of Israel. And, uh, and he uh, rebukes them pro for profaning uh, his institution uh, of uh, marriage. 
And so he says in verse 10, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created all, uh, us all? Now that's a weird way to begin uh, talking about being faithful to our marriage vows. Uh, to, to begin it by saying, have we uh, not all one Father? Has not one God created us? And it's verses like this where people look and say, well, what is... Uh, what?" Uh, 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 Malachi is teaching here is the universal brotherhood of man, uh, that we are all one, we're all the product of the same creator, and that we're all going to end up in heaven one day. That is not at all what is being uh, uh, declared here uh, it, it, uh, at all. It is a reminder of the fact that as Christians, we share the same creator, we share the same heavenly father, and thus we should treat one another as a family. And in verse 10, it, again, it, it might seem like it's odd, but what he's doing here is he's setting the tone for what follows on marriage. And this idea, this realization that as God's people, we are family. And we are to see our husbands, we are to see our wives, not merely as a husband or as a wife, but to also see them spiritually as a brother or a, or a sister, as one who shares the same heavenly Father uh, with us. And because we view them, not merely physically, but we have uh, view them through this spiritual lens, uh, then we are, are going to treat them with the care and the respect that we would treat really any other Christian uh, uh, with. You have, in some Christian marriages, you have the husband or the wife who treats their spouse in a way they would never dream of treating another person or ever dream of treating another Christian. They would be ashamed to treat another person in the way that they routinely treat their husband uh, or their wife. That is someone who has forgotten that the Christian I am married to has a heavenly father. And that this I share with this husband or wife the same heavenly father. We are children uh, of that, that same father, children uh, uh, partakers in that, in that, that same uh, family. And I, I think that uh, you have so often, if you have a husband who's mistreating a, a wife, uh, the realization that, uh, you know, when I, there have been times where, and, and not, not very often, but uh, Karen and I will see something a little differently. <laughs> so it's never, never a big deal. We've, we're, we're pretty compatible on, on things. And, um, and, you know, I can, this is, this is such ancient history, I'm just embarrassed to even be bringing it up. I'm such a different person today. But I can get upset over, over something. And then the Lord will remind me, don't forget, she's not just your wife. She is my daughter. And as the father of two daughters, I know if there's one way you want to get the negative attention of a father, than is to mistreat uh, his, his daughter. 
And, and so here is this, and it works the same way back around with a wife in terms of treating her husband. Every Christian husband is married to a father's daughter, the father's daughter, and, and vice versa. And he's saying we are to be heavily influenced by this in our relationship, our marriage relationships uh, with one uh, another and with uh, I'm in a relationship with God's daughter or with one of his his sons and so he declares there in the latter part of verse 10 uh, why do we deal treacherously with one another and so uh, by profaning the covenant of, of the father so why he asks, do we hurt one another in violation of the law of Moses and so their violations of the law of Moses, the sins that they were committing were not only being committed in terms of marriage and what they were doing with marriage, that God is informing them that your sins that you're committing are not only being committed against God, but they're being committed against the person that you're married to if you, if you treat them in this way. And the word treacherous means uh, guilty of or involving betrayal or uh, deception. No one ever harms another human being in the world by living a life obedient to the Word of God. But once we move away from obeying the Word of God, not, not only is our relationship with God affected adversely, but it also adversely affects the relationships in our life and in, in our marriages uh, as well. And so Malachi then identifies the specific sins that were not only a sin against God, but a sin against uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. Sins of treachery, sins of betrayal, sins of deception is what he, he's saying here. And he, he addresses two, two particular uh, marriage situations and uh, the first one he, he addresses is in verse 11, their intermarrying. God rebukes, rebukes the Jews here for intermarrying with uh, the nations, the Gentile nations around them who worshiped other gods. He said, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been uh, committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. He calls this an abomination. What is the abomination? For Judah has profaned, and then look how beautiful this next line is, the Lord's holy institution which he loves. That's how he describes marriage. A lot of people don't realize that marriage is an institution of God. It's not something that the Aztecs came up with, or the whoever, the Incas, or whatever thing could come to my mind right now but isn't. <laughs> this is an institution of God. He's the one that put this together. And, and I love the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter uh, of a uh, foreign uh, God. And so their, their sin of intermarrying with the foreigners who worship uh, other gods. And of course, the law of Moses forbade uh, marrying non-Jews who worshipped other gods rather than the Lord uh, himself. Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you're taking notes related to that. And when God forbids the children of Israel from intermarrying with people that, that serve and worship other gods, uh, the, his, his concern here is not racial. 
His concern is a spiritual one because it would not only introduce then idolatry into the life of the person who's marrying the idolater, but also introduce idolatry into the whole camp of the children of Israel as well. And typically when you have a child of God who then uh, marries, as they were doing, readily marries somebody who worships another god, Molech or Ashtoreth or whatever it, it might be, worship, worships uh, an, another god, in, inevitably in that marriage, uh, one of the two people is going to end up having to compromise uh, their relationship with God, uh, the demands of their religion, the demands uh, of of their God, they end up compromising their faith. Uh, the Jews would end up in, in the marriage. And since the Jews had already compromised in marrying the unbeliever, of course they're going to be the first one who will compromise when push comes to shove in terms of what is going to be the God that will be the dominant God of the family and that the children will be raised up in as well. If I am willing to compromise in order to marry this person, then I'm going to carry that compromise right into the marriage, and the idol, the idol is going to end up with the upper hand. And it almost always uh, works out uh, that way. The Christian ends up with this kind of silent witness within the family, trying to pray things out of the place that they're in, because whatever the idol is, or the god, or uh, the god of selfishness, or whatever uh, might mark even an atheist, or, uh, or an agnostic, or an anti-god attitude, uh, that comes to prevail almost inevitably within, within the home. And so Malachi, he talks about uh, that. That very exact thing happened, of course, to King Solomon. He never became the king he was supposed to as God intended it, him to be as, as a result. And then additionally, uh, the, the problem gets complicated then when you add children to all of it. One religion is going to win out over the other religion in the home and then with the children. And very often it is the idolatry that wins because it is always easier to pull someone down than it is to pull someone up to pull someone down into sin and carnality than to pull them up into holiness and, and truth and true spirituality. And, and it's hard enough in terms of pulling children up into these things so often when both parents love the Lord and follow, uh, uh, follow Him, uh, bring this dynamic into the home, and it really, really becomes hard. So the applications for us as Christians uh, typically the second most important um, decision the average person will make in our life, and the first one being making Jesus Christ our Savior and our Lord. And the second most important decision we will ever make is who we choose to make our husband or uh, our uh, wife. And the Lord declares in the New Testament truth that the only pool that we are free to fish in is among the pool of Christians. We're never to marry a non-Christian because all, and it's not racial. It is religious, it is spiritual. And otherwise, all of these dynamics are, must inevitably then enter into 
uh, the marriage, and, and unnecessarily so. And so the Bible says we're not to be yoked or married with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, uh, as simple as can be. I won't read the whole passage to you, but Paul writes and says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers because there's going to be a conflict over who and what is worshipped in, uh, in the home. Which God or no God is going to be worshipped? One of the wonderful things about uh, be two Christians getting married is that, um, and, and that it's likened oftentimes to a triangle. You have uh, one Christian down here at this corner of the triangle, the other, the husband, uh, the other wife over here. And if Christ is at the pinnacle and both are endeavoring to grow into Christ's likeness, they will, as a byproduct of growing into Christ's likeness, grow closer to one another. The problem is, is if you, if you have uh, uh, Mary, an unbeliever, who worships another god or no god at all, while you're working towards Christ's likeness, they can be heading off over here. And, and so it actually becomes a, it becomes a very strong dynamic against growing together in a marriage. It certainly makes marriage a lot less of a blessing than God in, intends it. Uh, to be, and certainly spiritually. And so uh, it, it, it's one of the tragedies is that as the Christian then grows closer to the Lord, they discover that they're growing further and further away from the other person. And it's, and it's not an easy life. And it's really, really hard for the kids when, when kids are brought into that, that dynamic as well. And God is going to bring children up here in all of this. In other words, children are to be considered in these decisions that are, are, um, are being made and who it is that we marry. And to marry an unbeliever brings a unnecessary uh, dynamic into a child's life and into a, a child's childhood uh, that doesn't need to, uh, to be there and uh, wouldn't be present if two Christians were married for all of the problems we can have uh, in our, our own marriages. Now, the exception is, of course, is that if you're a Christian and you've chosen to marry a non-Christian in, in uh, the course uh, of your life, you're to remain committed to that marriage and then, uh, and, uh, and then ask God for grace. And obviously, as you're already doing, the salvation of your spouse and... Uh, and uh, but you're, you, you, we are not allowed to leave the marriage on the basis of this. So we, we honor that, that marriage commitment. Uh, if you, if uh, two marry and they get married and they're both unbelievers, and then one of them becomes a Christian in the course of things, this is very, very common. We're still committed to that marriage and praying that the other person will become a believer as well. Or if uh, both marry as unbelievers and one falls away from the faith, well, then we still uh, continue to uh, be committed to that uh, marriage. The, co the consequence of, of all of this, as he describes it there in verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And so... Uh, the plea that God would cut off uh, this kind of person from the tents of Jacob, from the midst of 
of, of the Jewish people, separate them from the assembly of God's people in order to remove their ungodly uh, influence. Because uh, once this becomes a, a thing where people, where, as we'll see in a moment, uh, easy divorce and remarriage gets introduced into a group of people, marrying unbelievers willy-nilly, once that gets traction and goes, it explodes. And we've seen it in our culture in the last 50 or 60 years. And so God said, listen, uh, don't allow this dynamic to get any kind of a foothold among, uh, among uh, my people and uh, remove their ungodly influence, especially those who were knew, did it, knew what they were doing, and, and they still continued to keep the religious uh, outward uh, appearances. And so God... Uh, took, no, took note of it, the hypocrisy of it. I did what I wanted. I married who I wanted. The whole thing's a mess, but I'm going to make it okay by bringing these offerings to the Lord. The Lord didn't want their offerings. He wanted their repentance. No, they can't leave the marriage now, but they need to get right with God and then move forward as an influence for him uh, within that marriage. The second attitude that he deals with here in terms of marriage is two things, marrying un unbelievers, uh, worshipers of other gods, and then in verse 13, uh, this, he, he, he corrects their, their casual attitude toward divorce. You notice in verse 13, and this is the second thing you do in this vein. Uh, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, and so he does not, that is, the Lord does not regard the offering anymore, uh, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. And so uh, men were divorcing their wives. In those days, only men could divorce. Uh, wives, a wife could not divorce a, a woman. And uh, so they were just divorcing their wives, contrary to the law of Moses, then coming to the altar of God, and they're weeping and they're crying. It's kind of this feigned show of their, their love and, and reverence for God. And God says, I'm not going to accept your offerings. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to accept that. What you've done to the wife of your youth has ruined and made unacceptable anything that you can offer to me. In, in, in this. The only thing that they could offer God at this point that would have been meaningful to him would have been their uh, uh, asking for forgiveness and repentance. You notice their sin, yet you say, God says, you're, 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 you're coming here and you're doing this phony act in front of me and, and, and all of this, and they say, what, what are you talking about? For what reason? And then the Lord gives them the reason because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, whom you have dealt, uh, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, uh, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring, and therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously. Uh, with the wife of his uh, youth. And so God's answer, he declares to them, uh, you are taking your wives and then you are divorcing 
uh, them, uh, presumably to marry someone who is younger or richer or whatever uh, it might have been. God reminds them that he had been a witness to their wedding vows. I was there when you got married and you promised to have and to hold and rich for richer, for poor, in life and in death and, and so forth. He said, I, I witnessed those vows. And you, you have, you've broken those vows simply in order to marry someone else. And he said, what you're forgetting and what is so often forgotten in this situation is when the, typically the, a man, but not always a man today, uh, abandons, their, their whole focus is on, not on what they're leaving or who they're leaving, but this new thing that they are uh, running off uh, to uh, uh, now. And, and that's what is, has got them all uh, goo-goo-eyed on, on things. And, and the Lord reminds them that you are leaving behind a casualty here. And you may try to forget it. You may try to ignore it. Uh, but I can't forget it. And I, I can't ignore uh, the, the price of the decision that, that you've, you've made here. And so he reminded them of his instruction concerning divorce. And he tells them in verse 14, she was the wife of your youth. And I mean, this is, uh, it, it, I mean, she was the one who is with you through all of the early years. Through all of the hardship, the extraordinary hardship, all of the sacrifice that was in, in, involved in in making a go, making a family, getting uh, situated in, uh, in life, and then this is how you repay her. And then now in her old age, after you have partaken of her youth, a youth she no longer possesses to give to any other man because she gave it to you, and then having spent it upon you, you are now going to cast her aside. The double tragedy is, is that for the spouse, those are some of the happiest years of their life. I look at younger people today, and I know what it is to not have two pennies in my pocket to rub together being younger. And, and now here I am at this age, and I've got two quarters I can rub together. And on most days, I can buy a cup of coffee, just, just like that, if I feel like it. But that wasn't always true. I mean, we had to save money to buy a pizza in, in the early years. Never went out, not even to McDonald's. We couldn't afford it. And, and yet you can look and pity related to that and, oh, how hard and all of that. But they're the happiest years. They're the years you'll always look back on with such a satisfaction. And by leaving these wives and then going after these uh, other, other wives, they're not only abandoning their wife, but they're spoiling all of that memory. All of that history will now become something that taunts them, a source of heartbreak instead of a source of joy. I mean, the damage that gets done here is extraordinary, and God wants them to face it. He said, uh, she is your companion. She is your wife by covenant. You vowed to be faithful uh, to her. And, uh, and you are breaking that vow. And I witness that vow that you made. And then in verse 15, he reminded them of his original intent for marriage. Um, God made one wife for Adam, he says. One wife, Eve. 
not Eve and Nancy and Claire and uh, Rebecca. Uh, it was just one wife, Eve. He did this by uh, design. He, he, you know, he could have created uh, Adam and then created Adam, uh, created several wives for Adam. He had the capacity to do that. But by, by design, he did not do that so that two lives would be together and enjoy the richness that happens in a life by spending a life together and, and growing through all of those, uh, all of those uh, that, that kind of, of a history. And so divorce, he says, it's not conducive to nurturing children, as he declares there in verse 15, in the fear uh, of the Lord. Uh, the family is to be what God intends it to be, staying together for the sake of the children, that they would be raised in the things of the Lord. The Lord wants children to be raised in an environment where their childhood is secure. They are not worried about whether mom and dad are going to stay together, whether this life that I have is going to continue, or whether we're going to be split apart and scattered in all directions. Now, I know it's painful to talk about this tonight, and I know it can be painful to listen to it because the culture is so far away from this today. It just does this related to marriage and, and uh, handles it in this way, and then nobody writes any articles or does documentaries or specials on the catastrophic damage that uh, results uh, from it uh, because we don't want to face it. So it's even more important to look at it in, in, in the light of God's Word. Nobody will tell us this, these things uh, except God uh, will tell us. And so the, uh, the importance of a, a parent that is looking to leave unbiblical reasons, leave a, a marriage, and to be told, then stop and think about uh, the children and think about the damage that is going to be done to the wife, to the husband, to the children, and, uh, and, and, and what is going to happen to them. And he tells them, take heed to your spirit, verse 15, Divorce is not an option. It's not to have a place in, in our hearts or in our minds. And verse 16, he says, For the Lord God, God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so he views this as an, uh, a, an act of violence. And anybody who's ever been through a divorce, especially one they didn't want, there may not be any bruises, there may not have been be any beatings, no physical kind of damage of that kind, but it is an act of violence against the other person and, and, and could be the hardest thing that a person will ever, ever face in, uh, in, in life. And so uh, it, it is used to cover all kinds of uh, of injustice. You take any social service uh, agency in the United States of America, and, and, and if we want to be versed in the damage that is done by virtue of divorce to children, just talk with anyone in that field. Children always remember how old they were when their, their parents divorced. And it, it, it is almost instantly, even in a culture as affluent as the United States of America, for a divorce to occur, it almost always plunges the wife and the children into poverty. Into poverty. Their options in life and where they live 
where the kids get to go to school, all of these different kinds of things, everything changes on a, on a dime there. And, and it, it's an act of violence uh, against uh, all of it. And the Lord says he hates it because he sees all the damage that it does, even as our culture would uh, hide uh, all of those things. And so the Lord wants, uh, he wants marriage among his people to be one more distinctive, one more way that the world can look at our lives and, and see that the God that we serve and the kingdom that we're a part of is different from everything else um, in, in the world. And uh, for them to discover hope for their own uh, marriage in turning uh, to the Lord. And so Christians are to have the highest view of marriage uh, in all of the world. And it's taught in the New Testament, very strongly taught uh, here as well. So important instruction. Uh, we won't go into verse 17 because another question is posed that is then answered in chapter 3. And, uh, and we don't want to get into that uh, tonight. So important instruction concerning Christian service, the attitude related to it, and then the uh, institution of marriage. Now, it is important to also uh, add to the fact that, that um, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And so here we're talking about the United States of America, apart from Christ, and the numbers aren't very much lower, related to, to uh, among Christians, 50%. So I know this steps on a lot of toes tonight, and it can churn up a lot of emotion and a lot of difficulty for people and a lot of of regret but we can't change what's in our past all we can do is understand what God's Word says and and then make that the standard for our own life and then look at that line that's right in front of our toes going forward that there is a good and acceptable and a perfect will for my life whatever is back there going forward as I walk in in his ways and the Lord will meet us there and he will bless us there but even when we've handled these things wrong in, in our life, it's important to understand uh, that uh, so that we can be the ones who would then speak to other people and say, you better think twice about that as a Christian. You have no idea what's coming your way with the decision that you're about to, to make. And then from uh, one's own experience to be able to speak and be salt and light uh, into that decision uh, 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 then being multiplied into other lives as well. God knows how to redeem things and work things together for good. And, uh, and so uh, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. But having said that, uh, as we look at these symbols of, of the greatness of God's grace here in, in, in the forgiveness that is in Christ, as we look at the symbols of his body, and of his blood here tonight as we pre prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper together.